Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivrilani. Medical education has experienced unprecedented challenges throughout the COVID pandemic. And now that hopefully the worst of the pandemic seems to be behind us, we want to take stock of what changes may be lasting and what are the pressing needs in medical education going forward. We could not have a better guide through these questions than Dr. Sanjay Desai, who's the Chief Academic Officer and Group Vice President of Medical Education at the American Medical Association. Dr. Desai assumed that role last year after serving for many years as Professor of Medicine, Director of the Osler Medical Residency and Vice Chair for Education at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where we first originally met when I was a medical student. I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Triola at NYU for suggesting Dr. Desai as a raised line guest. And uh, Dr. Desai, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, my pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm I'm happy also that Mark referred you to me. I'm excited to talk with you and your audience. Yeah, it's, it seems like very innovative and uh, influential medical educators run in the same circles like you and Mark. So, um, you know, I know a lot about your background, having uh, followed your career from Hopkins. But for our audience's sake, could you tell us a bit more about what got you interested in healthcare, and then particularly emergency and critical care medicine? Yeah, absolutely. So I I um. Maybe like many kids, my mother wanted me to pursue medicine, so I fought it forever. <laughs> so I went to college not thinking that I was going to pursue medicine. I actually studied bioengineering and economics and was going to pursue consulting, which I actually ended up doing for some time. And um, towards the end of undergraduate studies, uh, I was at Penn. Healthcare, just medicine, actually in particular, it just became very exciting for me. And so uh, I decided very late, not late, but later than most people to pursue medicine. And then I did consulting in between. And um, after medical school, actually had a bit of a circuitous route shift. So I really enjoyed consulting beforehand and after internships. So this is particularly, I think, uh, unusual <laughs> and I wouldn't recommend it to others. I left to pursue consulting again for a couple of years. Uh, really enjoyed it, but desperately missed the patient care. And, and in particular, um, you know, more than ever, I felt what it is to have that privilege of caring for patients. And so that's what drew me back. And since I came back, I, I enjoy chaos, which is what brought me to critical care. Uh, and I also really enjoy and am passionate about being around learners. And so that's what brought me to education. And so uh, really have felt lucky to to be in the role of program director at at Hopkins for the last decade. Yeah, no, totally. We can definitely relate on the the zigzag or circuitous route to finishing. And like you, I mean, before this episode started, I was talking about my desire to go back and finish med school. It's one thing to achieve a certain amount of scale and reach people you don't even know directly, but it's a whole different uh, and amazing thing to be able to be led into a patient's life and uh, they'll talk to you about their condition, their family really cares about the interactions you have with them. So that, that's really meaningful. Yeah. And I, I just said, I mentioned to you that I look forward to talking to you about that, Shiv, and I hope for your future patients, you choose to go back because they would be very lucky to have you. Thanks so much. And so, so going into your role as program director for many years at Hopkins. Um, so for those who don't know, the Osler Medical Residency is among probably the most prestigious, if not one of the most prestigious medical residencies out there. And people who go through this residency program, they often will wear, it was on Fridays, they'll wear the same. Fridays. Yeah, Friday, they, they wear ties or scarves. And because of the pandemic, when we weren't wearing ties and scarves, we shifted to socks. And that's become the go-to <laughs> apparel on Fridays at this point. 
It's quite a community. And I've had many of my classmates from when I was in med school at Hopkins go through it as well. So, you know, you uh, having led the program at Hopkins, two of your priorities were improving student and resident well-being and also enrolling more medical trainees from groups that are underrepresented in medicine. Could you share a little bit about any progress uh, you made in those areas and what do you think remains to be done? Yeah, thank you, Shiv. I think, um, you know, those are certainly two of the biggest priorities that we had. The well-being became more and more in the center of what we knew had to be addressed in a more structured way, not just in medical residencies, but it, I would say in and not only in graduate medical education, but I think it became clear that well-being was an urgent issue in practicing physicians and, and certainly in medical student education as well. So I think our approach had been as best we could to identify the sources of things that are leading to burnout, which was you know the cause of not having students that feel well-being. I think this is an important part of what we have to continue to do. Uh, too often, we're spending significant resource and investment, not just uh, financial capital, but I would say human capital as well, on treating symptoms of burnout. And, and we see that every day. And I think those are good things to do, but I don't think that they'll fix the problem. I think that those are, again, treating symptoms. And for us to, to really understand how to develop and then sustain a physician workforce that will thrive, we need to understand the structural barriers for them to be healthy. And um, that requires data. So our approach was to collect data. So we conducted a, a various research studies to try to understand what these structural barriers are. And I think the biggest one, for me, the most exciting one is ongoing now. It happens to connect to my new role at the AMA. So we, when I was at Hopkins, we received one of the grants from the AMA to reimagine residency. And, and that grant had two objectives, one of which was to understand well-being in the clinical learning environment and so actually study it with data across four different residency programs in the country. So that study is ongoing and um, it's hypothesis driven, uh, which I think is very important. And so I think we've made some progress. I think there is much more progress to be made. And I also believe that while we might find data related to graduate medical education, I think we should not presume those are the same structural barriers to well-being in medical student education, nor in the lives of practicing physicians as well. So, so I think there is a lot of work still to be done here. The other you know, really important and urgent issue that we've only started really to make progress against or even understand is, is how do you bring people who are historically minoritized into the physician workforce? We need to have a physician workforce that resemble the patients that we care for, but also I think equally importantly, resemble the life experiences of the patients that we're privileged to care for. And so that is a very long arc in terms of the work that I believe needs to be to be done. We started, and I, I feel proud for what we did at the local level. You know, you asked about the program. We did think very carefully about how do we start to make these changes. Uh, and it's far, and I think you know this, but it's far beyond numbers. It's not about just increasing the numbers of people who are historically marginalized. It's, it's building community. It's building belonging. And in the end, it's culture change. And that takes time. So we started that process through discussion, through understanding how do we evaluate applicants differently in a more holistic way that resulted in more than doubling of the numbers of people that we 
uh, were fortunate to recruit into our program that came from historically marginalized populations. And, and I think that leads to a virtuous cycle, Shiv, and I hope that that happens elsewhere where uh, you create community. And once you create community, then you can build on it. And so I think um, while we've made some progress, I, there, there's no doubt we have to do so much more and to continue to think about structures, think about our processes, think about how do you sustain that cultural change that has started. So I, I think both of these things, we feel proud that we've started and paid focus and attention on, but I believe both require substantially more work moving ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And again, those are really impressive results. And you know, things that work at, at Hopkins tend to diffuse out to other places just because of the, the international recognition that Hopkins has for even creating the modern medical education system with the Flexner Report and whatnot. And so, you know, you obviously had a major impact at Hopkins with these initiatives and, and leading the programs. The next kind of question I think our audience would be interested in is, you know, what drew you over to the AMA? I know it has wonderful people like Maya Hamoud, Susan Scotchelak, and then Rich Hawkins was there for many years. So some great medical educators who've committed their lives to it. Is it mostly the scale that you have now to be able to export some of those initiatives and programs to other programs across North America? Or how are you thinking about it? Yeah, sure. I think that's exactly right. I think for, for me, um, I felt, again, lucky to have the role at Hopkins for leading that residency for over 10 years. And um, what drew me to this, I should say, was the opportunity for a scale to take the things I'm most excited about that I feel passion for and to be able to do them with a greater reach. The AMA thankfully has that position in the system. It It is able to have substantially more reach across programs and across schools. Um, and I think that's a different type of impact. So I think having it locally, you you control things and you can build things. Having it at a national level, you can connect things and innovate, I think, differently. So even just through our grants, we have partnerships with over 50 medical schools, tens of thousands of, of learners. And so by having that type of ability to partner, ability to uh, influence, so broadly. And I think the commitment that the AMA has made to, to medical education, you named a lot of people there that I think have demonstrated that commitment is what made it exciting. I would say the final thing is that the, the mission of medical education at the AMA is, is innovation. And that's also something I've always enjoyed thinking about and I believe needs to be instilled and, and brought to education as much as possible. So to be able to think about that and to to try to do that at a scale that is national was for me an opportunity that doesn't come up very often and I was excited to take on. Yeah, no, it's very exciting to, to see. I mean, again, we, I mentioned Mark Triola in the introduction, but you know, last conversation I had with him where he recommended you as a guest as well, he was talking about all the data too, where you can track you know, what you're teaching students early on in their medical education and how that may or may not influence actual patient outcomes or prescriber behavior or whatnot over time, which is the holy grail. Because ultimately what makes medical education, I think, different than you know, language education or, or math education is that the ultimate outcome is for the benefit of every patient. It's beyond that individual. It's really very patient-centric, which is great. So you mentioned innovation at the AMA. We mentioned a couple of things, residency well or trainee well-being and getting a, a more diverse pipeline into, into the healthcare workforce. What are some of the other things that have changed for the better in your time as a medical education leader? And what are some of the most pressing needs for change going forward? And you can repeat some of the same things, but there may be some others that we haven't covered yet. Yeah, sure. Things have changed for sure. In medical education, I started as a medical student now 
uh, actually a very long time ago, almost 30 years ago. And things have clearly changed for, for the better in many, many ways. So we, you know, I think I would summarize those changes by saying that we have far more focus on the experience of our students and the experience of our learners than we had before. We've also added more structure, more standardization, which I think has helped. Um, and that there's been more of a community across programs across the country. So I, th I think that in many ways, the focus on the experiences that we have as students and learners has improved. But there are challenges that were present then and that continue to be, I think, present today. We actually just have went around, because I'm new to this role, and, and actually had conversations with the alphabet soup of associations and organizations in academic medicine across the country. And we asked him exactly these questions. So, you know, what are the most urgent problems in, in medical education? And there were a lot of them, <laughs> but they generally bucketed into three areas. They either bucketed into health system problems, uh, which I think are less in the control of education. And, and this is the, the systems through which education is delivered. So you can imagine the health systems themselves. You can think about the workforce issues related to production of physicians. You can think about the interprofessional, so non-physician interactions and coordination. So all of this is in the corporations that are largely controlling or managing educational programming. So that's one set that I think is, is different and is a challenge and needs to be managed. There's also this whole set of what I would consider educational systems. So the ones that really came out as the most common when we had these conversations are, number one would be competency-based medical education. So the idea that we today continue to have an educational paradigm that is built on time and it's built on process. What we want is an educational model that produces physicians that's based on competency. And it's very complicated, but it's also very necessary. And so taking steps towards that will be important for us. I think the other problems that are urgent are thinking about all the transition shift in, in medical education. So coming into medical school, there's a big focus on that transition from medical school into residency and how stressful and, and inequitable that can be. And then there's there are other transitions in the rest of your professional journey. So into practice and into mid-career and then into late stages of career. So that's another area where I think we need to have much more improvement. Um, equity, diversity, volume, we talked about this already. Uh, this is foundational need for our country for us to think about how to do this in a better way. Well-being, you mentioned, we need to think about how to do that better as well. The final one, which I think is less of a problem that existed before, but I think uh, an opportunity for us is, and you talked to Mark Trilla, this is about using technology and data. And this is the space you're in, actually. How do you use technology and data to personalize education? And, and this is absolutely where we need to be and where we need to go. And the investments that we need to make are really important in this particular area around precision and education. If you think about it, it's Using data and technology the way that you expect to use it in every other aspect of your life <laughs> in, in medical education. And there are so many examples of how this is done elsewhere and how we need to, how it's not done well in medical education. And I think in the end, it's what you said at the beginning of this question, which is that it ultimately has to connect back to patients. So if we use data, analytics, precision, 
in education, we deliver the right training to the right physician at the right time, then you're delivering education that is relevant for the patient that they're seeing and that care will improve. And that's that's the ultimate goal of medical education in general. So this, this is, a, I think, a really important uh, and exciting opportunity, one in which we'll be focusing. And I'm hoping that there are many organizations and institutions that are, that are going to add to that focus. Absolutely. And there's so many threads that we could pull on there. But, you know, going back to Mark Triola, I know uh, NYU is going to their MD curriculum across all eight different programs at NYU is going to be three years. And the AMA has been very supportive of him and his work and the whole three-year consortium. As long as we're still stuck in a time-based system, because I agree competency-based is where we all need to go, um, why not make that time for those students who want it shorter and more efficient? And one of the coolest, I think, innovations he may have talked to you about that we're working with NYU on is this whole actually send osmosis-style videos to medical students in the third and fourth year based on the patients they're seeing based on the ICD-10 codes. And he's some very cool work that he's helped uh, lead on that. Yeah, I am familiar with that work. And I think that's exactly the kind of work that we need to scale. It's also the kind of work that with imagination, you can think of many different other ideas that are similar to that, that you could use to improve the education for practicing physicians or for residents, not only for the patients that they care for tomorrow, but also related to their understanding of the, the quality and safety trends that may exist in a particular health system that they're practicing within or, or an epidemiologic trend that's happening in a community. That So it's not just, I think, identifying a gap and delivering education. It's also being predictive, uh, you know, what they might need to know in a week or in a month. And I think the other important part of this is uh, using data and using technology shift to to do what we're talking about, deliver education, but also try to solve what's thought about in innovation in other industries regularly, which is reducing friction. So there's there's a tremendous amount of friction in the educational and professional journey of a physician in our country. So how do you use data and technology to eliminate that? Um, You can think of all the the transitions that would be far more seamless if you could mobilize and leverage data in, the, in an efficient way around licensing and verifications and credentialing and even at, at the medical student stage around educational data elements that you have to continue to repopulate uh, every time you you move from one stage of training to another. So, so there's a lot of opportunity here. Absolutely. And that's what you mean by transition from compartmentalized or siloed medical education to a continuum-based approach, right? Was there more around that? Yeah, yeah. Even taking another step back, I, I would say that revisiting what is the goal of medical education, the ultimate goal for us, uh, for any country in medical education is to produce physicians that are capable for caring for their patients and their communities. And you'll hear in, in almost every perspective will describe how our system is too inefficient, it's inequitable, it's unreliable, uh, it's costly. And so part of the problem is this compartmentalization and process-oriented structure that we have for medical education. And so I think it needs to become more continuous. It needs to become more personalized. Uh, in doing so, you, you achieve Again, getting to competencies, getting to thinking about what's important. What are the goals that we have for the country and solving against those? So I think if you do that well, then these transitions become less rigid and they start to become much more fluid and they become individualized. And so I think that's what I mean by getting rid of and trying to think of our continuum of education as a continuum and not as 
four years, then six years, then X years. And really instilling this idea of competency of, of adaptive learning, um, because the physician that's been practicing for 20 years needs to learn as much as we focus on the medical student learning. And so, so there are some principles that really are not, should not be thought of in silos of different stages of your professional journey. And, and this is, in my view, a continuum that starts the day that you choose that you wanna pursue medicine to whenever you choose to stop thinking <laughs> about medicine. I love that, yeah. And in, in broader education, that's called uh, from pre-K to gray. Yeah, <laughs> yes. That's very cool, very interesting. And, and a, lot, a lot of shared discussion on that. So. Uh, I know we're coming up in time, so I want to be respectful and uh, kind of go through the, the other questions. So, you know, zooming out beyond medical education, COVID has had a much larger impact across society and our healthcare system, ranging from the rise of consumer-driven healthcare to telemedicine, obviously. What other things do you think COVID has revealed about the healthcare system? And what are some of the key steps that we could use to strengthen it, or as we say, raise the line and improve the healthcare system? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think that... Um... Many have described COVID as an accelerant, and I think that's the part of COVID that we should embrace. Uh, before embracing that, it's also, I think, has exposed deep flaws in the system. And these won't surprise, I think, anybody listening because we've all seen it or experienced it, uh, but those around inequities and around disparities, uh, around well-being, I think also around professionalism and values. I think there are concerns that have been um, growing in the in the setting of the pandemic with some of the behaviors that we see from physicians, uh, perhaps exacerbated by the moral injury and the fatigue that we have. But uh, I, the easy examples would be misinformation and disinformation. And so I think really thinking about being accountable for ourselves and being accountable for what we've tolerated in terms of disparities in this country. And so I think these are things that are, I think, exposed by the pandemic in a very real a meaningful way. But also, I think it's accelerated, you know, as you mentioned, telehealth is an example. I think in many ways, it's, it's accelerated the idea of using data and using technology to improve the way that we educate physicians. What I hope, Shiv, is that we remain absolutely intolerant of the inefficiencies that we had before, which, you know, during the pandemic, we became intolerant of them. And I hope that we don't lose that. We should be intolerant of those things. We should not be satisfied uh, having the system that we had. And we need to take advantage. You know, people talk about using a crisis as an opportunity. And I think, you know, hopefully we can do that for our profession and for the country and for the patients that we serve. Yeah, no, well said. Absolutely. And, you know, there's some signs that that will stay, but then other signs like being able to approve another installment of uh, booster vaccines that are being held up in Congress. I know that's frustrating right. about how short our memory is. Um, so as you know, Osmosis is a teaching company and we like to fill in knowledge gaps. Um, the AMA has done a lot of filling in the knowledge gaps over the years, including, you know, Susan Scorchlack and her book on health system science. Maya Homu just published her book on, on coaching and mentorship, uh, which is exciting to see. What topic do you think we should, uh, you know, if you could snap your fingers and have Osmosis make any videos on any topics to educate our 2.4 million YouTube subscribers and registered learners, what would you want that topic to be? Yeah, I, I would say... Uh, adaptive learning. We already know that it's impossible to know everything you need to know. <laughs> that's that's the known. And so how can we maintain the growth mindset and the mindset of learning continuously? So I think that would be a 
wonderful way for you to impact the lives of 2.4 million people, plus the people that they will care for. If you can help them, again, us all instill this model of growth mindset and adaptive learning. Awesome. Good to know. And actually, a couple of years ago, I did talk to Martin Pusek and um, William Kutterer at Vanderbilt. And we made a video on the Master Adaptive Learner several years ago, but it may need a refresh at this point. So I'll be sure to follow up on that. My last question for you is, you know, we obviously have an audience of many early stage healthcare professionals. You know, what's your advice to them about approaching their career in healthcare now in this moment and beyond? My advice and my reflection is it's the best profession I believe one could enter. I think it, as I mentioned in the beginning, it became so palpable to me the privilege it is to care for someone. And I think if we can remember, so I encourage everyone listening to remember why you made the choice to pursue this field and this profession. I think that privilege is, it is unique. And I would also in the setting of all that we've seen in the last two years, remember to be a force and an advocate for change. Uh, I think engaging, you have to engage in your health system, engage in your community, uh, engage in policy or or education, whatever it is that's the passion for you. But I would encourage you to engage beyond your daily activities. Uh, and then finally, I think like all of us, we need to continue always to remember to invest in the next generation. So I, I encourage everyone to continue to do that as well. But But more than anything, enjoy it because it is a privilege to be able to care for patients. And I hope everybody feels that as much as possible. Well, those are some wonderful words of advice to end on. So Dr. Desai, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. And more importantly, for the work that you've done to raise line and train the next generation of healthcare professionals, not only at Hopkins and now nationally. Shiv, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.